good to see you all. I'm not the first one to throw things off the pulpit in here, Cole. <laughs> Donuts, namely. For those of you I haven't met, I'm sorry. I should have met most of you by now. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm on the preaching team. I'm not a pastor. I'm one of the deacons here. This is my fifth time preaching in front of you guys. Um, and if I'm being honest, I didn't want to preach today. Uh, more so about three weeks ago, Pastor Cole said, hey, do you want to trade sermons? Um, And one part of me was like, no, because you have the most busy weekend ever this weekend. Why would you want to preach, you animal? Uh, Another reason is because, and we'll get into this a little more, uh, this sermon's going to be very candid. Um, I'm inviting you into some of my emotional process, but I think it's a shared emotional process. It's been a very difficult season for me. I've been angry with God. I feel like things have been taken from me. Uh, and writing this sermon has been a uh, confrontation of my ego uh, and the reality of God's grace and goodness. So if it seems a little personal, I'm sorry, but I, I invite you to consider that maybe in different circumstances you've experienced, are experiencing, and will ultimately experience a similar thing. Um, so I just wanted to say that to get that out of the way in case I, I may, from a pulpit sense, maybe overshare a little bit about what's going on or something. I just, I just wanted to open you all up and invite you into that struggle with me because um, I think it's something we're all going to experience. A few years ago, we were in Exodus. Raise your hand, by, by the way. Who's all been here since Exodus? I was like pre-COVID. About half the church. Awesome. Uh, so this reference actually will, will land for some of you. Others, it'll be new and fresh, and I don't feel like I'm rehashing old things. Uh, Pastor Cole made a reference to a famous commencement speech given at Kenyon College by top three favorite author of mine. Uh, it's given by David Foster Wallace, where he waxed on the complexities and purpose and preparation of higher education. See, David Foster Wallace is a goldmine of an author who wrote complex novels. He wrote beautiful short stories and very sociologically sensitive essays. He was a master at his craft. But despite his incredible usage of language, his comprehension of English, he never wanted to be some esoteric ivory tower writer or some alien titan of words. He constantly pushed to understand the little things different perspectives, and ultimately attempt to apprehend or grasp simple things right in front of him. I want to unearth that speech again for the sake of this sermon. It starts with a parable in which two fish are swimming along and a third older fish uh, swims by with a simple comment, morning boys, how's the water? This confounds the two younger fish who ponder, what the heck is water? In that speech, David Foster Wallace does an extraordinary job of offering the true path of higher education. That is that awareness and intellectual availability in the routine of daily life uh, is, is more important than what you're studying. Higher education isn't simply meant to elevate the individual to some savant caliber thinker. You're not supposed to come out being some genius, rather... You should be preparing more and more for the daily tedium of life. Be appreciative and sensitive to others and recognize those things, people, and happenings around you. 
This parable Wallace shares climaxes at the end of the speech, wherein he returns to the two younger fish pondering and claims, this is water. They ask, what the heck is water? And at the end, after going through all of that, he exclaims, this is water. As to illustrate that the daily ongoings, if we're not sensitive to them, could exist entirely unknown or lost to us. That if we don't pay attention, we will not understand like two fish simply neglecting their existence and the necessity of water. Church, it's my hope today to keep it short and my singular goal to call us to open our eyes, to arouse us, to arouse the sleeper, shake off the dust and look around to the wonders and workings of God. But before we get into that, I want to pray. Father, I've been angry with you. I've closed my eyes on your many mercies. But God, you've still poured your love and grace out daily. You've built me up despite my best efforts to tear myself down. And you have established me as righteous through the work of the Son. So now I pray for this room. Give us attentive ears and hearts. Attune our affection to your will. And teach us, God, to delight in your works. Renew our vigilance and observation of your wondrous deeds. And make us humble before them, always giving thanks to you. I ask that you would bless my words and remove any pride. God, crush it fast. It is in your precious name that we pray, church. Amen. I would like to start with a quick recap from last week because they're very related. Uh, the recap goes, this is Exodus 2. Uh, there, there's more to it, but it seems, it seems like a lot of Mark uh, is relating to the Exodus. So understanding what's going to happen today also takes understanding what happened last week because my verses are actually going to reference last week's verses very closely. So Jesus and his disciples go to a desolate place uh, maybe wandering in a desert or something. And many individuals see and recognize them. This is last week. So they follow them out into the desolate place. Some 5,000 people run on foot and follow. And by the time all things are sorted, 5,000 men have followed Christ and the disciples out into some barren place, taking an exodus. And they become hungry as people do out in desolate places where there isn't food. So Jesus sends some out to gather food and manages to feed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread. In my head, this is a personal reflection. This is perhaps from a logistical standpoint, the most impossible miracle. Just an aside, the cynic in me in a modern culture would love to kind of consider, how could you fake a miracle? I mean, maybe some of you have played with that in your darkest points. You're like, if a miracle were to be faked, well, maybe they looked like them, something like that. For me, feeding 5,000 people from five loaves of bread is a logistical nightmare. Forget, forget like the science of it. How do you organize 5,000 people to agree to tell everyone that this happened? Like somebody's gonna narc. So for me, last week's, last week's miracle is oddly one of the most powerful simply because it crushes the cynic in me. Like, I can't imagine the logistical nightmare of feeding 5,000 people. I mean, yesterday, there was the logistical nightmare of cotton candy, and we barely made it through that. And that was like, what? There's 200 people max. This is 5,000 people with five loaves in like some imaginary fish. Anyway, that's just an insight into my mind. Fighting the cynic. Think about the 5,000 fed. It's a nightmare logistically. Anyway... So Jesus feeds them miraculously. 
And like Cole brought up last week, this is not the first time this region has experienced a wondrous nourishment from God. Remember the Exodus. Um, and, the, and the people there probably are thinking of the Exodus too, of manna, as many of the onlookers would also be familiar with their forefathers' stories of being fed by God in the wilderness. I think that's important because that will set the stage for today's sermon. Understanding the similarities of Exodus there will set the stage for you guys and for me to combat what we're seeing and confronting in today's text. Where we're going to see Jesus go back to back in miracles, uh, as, as Jesus often does in his ministry, um, we're going to have action and astonishment. And finally, um, at least I did, but I hope you all will collide with confusion and hard-heartedness. So if you would please rise, whether in body or heart, for the reading of God's word this morning. I took that, by the way, from Westkirk. They said rise in body or spirit for the reading of the text, and I really like that. So we're borrowing that from Michael Mudloff, who's awesome. Uh, We are in Mark 6, verses 45 through 52. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Church, this is God's word. It is beautiful, it is informative, it is restorative, it nourishes us every day. You may be seated. The last time I taught, I started by explaining the phrase in media res to describe how agile and immediate the gospel of Mark is. Another quick recap. In media res just means like in the thick of things, in the middle. Um, Transitions are very fast. They're related. Stories just boom, 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 boom. And this is certainly that way. Mark in its narrative structure is this, this speed we get at the start of this text. It says immediately, which will leave the reader to imagine, the loaves and the fish have been miraculously spread. In my head, I'm picturing the 5,000 men, so there's more, still eating. Like the food's not even like done yet. Um, but here, immediately, we see um, Christ sets his next actions in motion Meanwhile, many are neglectful or unaware of what has taken place in front of them. I don't even know if everybody in attendance would know that this was miraculous, that they started with, with that many. Maybe some assumed that there was just enough. Maybe not. I don't know. But while they're eating them, Christ immediately distributes and commands his disciples to go on to Bethsaida. Cross, cross the pond um, while he, that is Jesus, dismisses the crowd. So like a southern, southern pastor, you know, he's at the door shaking hands. He's already sent the people off to Chili's for, for the Sunday brunch with the family. He's like, all right, you go get us a table. It's a two-hour wait. And here he's shaking hands at the door. He's dismissing the crowds. 
So from there, Jesus goes alone to spend time with his father. Again, two-hour wait at Chili's is a long time. You have time to sit in your car in a Walmart parking lot and pray it out for all the things that you did that Sunday. Obviously, this isn't that, but in my head, this like plays out in real time. Like I see, I see guys kind of mimicking Jesus in a very Midwestern way. We do this. So it feels very relatable to me, even though I'm not Christ. Um, but he does. He goes onto a mountain to spend time with his father. He prays up until evening, late evening, where he departs the mountains. From there, he's coming down. He sees out at sea. Obviously, there's wind coming off the sea, so he can feel it too. He sees the disciples struggling bad, really bad. Not like torrential storm bad, but like winds were not getting across the water bad. Um, And we know that this is even the first time that the disciples have been waylaid by storms in Mark from a timeline perspective and this gospel, they just in, in, in this gospel don't have a good time on open water for, for a bunch of fishermen. It seems every time that boats are related, it's like not, not a good time for the disciples in Mark four. They're beset by a raging storm. That time Jesus is with them, though sleeping on the ship, he awakes and settles a storm. This time Jesus sees them struggling. So he's not asleep. He's still comfortable, but he's rested in his time in prayer with the father, looks out to the raging winds and sees the disciples struggling, can't make headway. Last time the men cried out in fear of, cried out in fear of death. Christ awoke and rebuked the winds to calm, leaving those around him terrified of the great power they just witnessed. This time, however, we see that Jesus isn't with them. Um, and it's not a raging storm. It's just strong winds. So what does Jesus do? Well, he, he means not to get to his disciples. He means to pass them by. The verse says he intends to pass them by um, and go on. But instead they see him and they get spooked. And listen, I don't think anyone in this room would manage that scenario well in this modern time. I don't want to like put blame on the disciples because... In this, the year of our Lord, 2023, we're very good readers at assigning blame or thinking we're better than the people in the books. Like, how could they do this? Or why did they act this way? Um, And I want to start here and just say, I get it from the disciples standpoint. It's late at night. It's windy. Maybe we're going to crash. And then um, they're in a much more spiritual era. Everything has, has both a physical or spiritual meaning. And you think you're going to die or at least not make it to port safely. And uh, somebody just like two steps their way in front of you. No boat. It's really windy. Your boat can't make headway. And then just like walking on the water, wind all around is this individual. So I think it's very fair. And I think that we should all be humble to go. No, this is an appropriate response. It's okay to be terrified in this scenario. Um, And they go, a ghost because that would be a normal response from any one of us. I don't want to put blame on them um, because it is, Christ, it is Christ's power and authority to command nature, but also it's the disciples' existence to not expect somebody to just walk out onto water. Um, but this time, instead of calming, calming the winds in, in the boat, he walks across the water to them. So they see him in the middle of the night, figure probably in a tunic, maybe some breeches and some sandals um, coming out and he gets into the boat and calms it. 
again, I just, I really, really quickly, I want to take a pause because I'm going to ask you guys uh, for a lot of sympathy for myself, but ultimately for the disciples today. Um, Before I've spoken sympathetically about Pharisees, I've challenged us about not being too hard on them as we are often struggling with the same things. Um, And I'm going to invite you to maybe acknowledge your human position and see similarities today of how the disciples respond in all of this to how you respond daily. More importantly, how I've noticed that I have been responding to God in these past few weeks. So I implore you to soften your hearts for the disciples. That's why I made light of it because I think we would respond the same way if we saw somebody walking on the water towards our ship in a storm. So imagine if you would, you're on a boat Unlike most of us in this room, uh, the something that you have experience in, half of this room would be fishermen. But despite your best experience, the weather has wrangled you into a slow standstill. You're not getting anywhere. It's late. You're tired. You're doing everything you can to progress, and nothing gains you any space in the journey. The wind just keep pushing you back. Every inch you make, you feel like you're losing too, and you look up and see a man walking towards you. If I was on any boat now or then, I I wouldn't handle that well. Um, But then it gets weirder because this individual to calm them, which I would say this is a calming statement, especially for the Christian, but he hits them with something extremely cryptic and encoded. He says, take heart, it is I. What a powerful statement that is. We're going to front load that statement with so much theology from a Christian perspective, we're just going to like bullet point all the meanings that we can, that we can like sieve out of that. We're going we're gonna to load it with individual identification. So what the disciples would, it is I, it's a statement. Like if you turn off the lights and I go, it is I, 80% of you in this room know my voice. So you would know that it is me declaring it's Casey. So that's the first layer, just, just statement of identification. Maybe a comforting reminder but I think, I think at the bottom of that filter is where, where the hinge is. And that's not just that it's a comforting reminder, not that it's just an identification of self as Jesus, but it's a, it's, a, it's a call, it's a recognition of divinity. Sharing similarity even to the, to the burning bush from, from I am, it is I. Similar acknowledgement. Here in front of the disciples, Jesus Christ is saying, be not afraid, I am here. From this statement, Christ climbs into the boat and the winds immediately cease, as they should, as nature subjects itself and submits itself to God. I would like to tell you that after this, the boat is all high fives. But I think if we're acknowledging how scared we would be, how confused we would be, and often how stubborn we are as creatures, we're going to see that the boat isn't all high fives. It's not celebration. It's not jubilation. It's the exact opposite. (laughs) Imagine being saved. And it's not a ghost bringing about your impending demise, which you expected and gave a right response to. But instead, it's your master Jesus coming to calm the winds, which you've seen him do before. You You would erupt in cheering, right? I mean, I hope that I would. But there isn't immediate celebration or worship. It's not the case. In fact, as we read, the exact opposite happens. They were astounded, sure, but then their hearts hardened. What happened? 
Well, I think like the Pharisees, it would be easy from this vantage point, that's our Christian vantage point, 20, 23 years later, roughly, uh, to accuse the disciples of not paying attention or of not believing. I've heard Christians say, I've heard myself say, if I were alive with Jesus, my faith would be stronger. Like surely if I saw what they saw, I would just like, I would get it. I would be better. I've heard the disciples got to witness miracles and still struggled as well, which is true um, as a counter to that. But sometimes not as a means of humility, but rather contention. Like they heard or they saw miracles and they struggled, but they struggled well. And it was easy for them to struggle because of what they saw. But right here, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. I think this is the rub of the text and even the human condition or experience. And maybe you've heard someone talk like this. Maybe church, you've talked like this. I know I have. And even recently. On the one hand, you have Jesus making a divinity statement. It is I. And it is a powerful one. And on the other hand, everyone listening is like bouldering and just scrunching up to his masterful command of creation. Church, I want to submit that this is often us. That's often me. And if we're not careful, even now in my head, in my own pride, I find it hard to imagine being hard-hearted about seeing an event like this and storms coming immediately. That seems impossible to me. You know, seeing not just one miraculous event in the day, in a 24-hour period, not one, but two, the feeding of 5,000 men, the logistical nightmare of getting everyone to agree that that was, you know, miraculous. It's so hard to fake. And if I'm being really stubborn, I would, I would make the excuse for, for condemning their hard-heartedness again just because of how fast it all happened and that they were there. They've seen more. I mean, if we just look back over the past two chapters of Mark, you'll see that 50% of the text in the last two chapters is Christ performing miracles. So how could they be hard-hearted? How could they not see this? How could they scrunch up? How could they not understand about the loaves, the relation to the manna, the desolate place, Exodus? Well, I think Exodus might be the key. I think when we see the term hard-hearted, we, we see that with Pharaoh too. How ignorant can they be? Well, maybe, maybe, let's, let's give it, let's, let's make them good listening Jews. And, and maybe the, the feeding of the 5,000 was too similar to how Elisha fed 100 men in 2 Kings. So maybe they were thinking of that for that. That's okay, write that off. So he's doing prophet things. This isn't the son of God, this isn't God. Just trying any way to excuse them because I know that I would be trying to find the same outs for myself. I don't know other than that they don't want to get it. I do know the latter of the verse is going to clear up our, ex, our, our speculations. So look again and see, alas, they were hard-hearted. So this isn't ignorance. You see... Their understanding, they did not understand the loaves, but they were hard-hearted. Those are together. So this isn't ignorance. It isn't stupidity or even a case of misunderstanding. Instead, we get the, potential, the picture that the presentation and statements are clear, 
but the audience isn't having it. Jesus is saying, look upon these works and know that I am God. Yet those closest to him cannot accept this, despite miracle after miracle. Those around Jesus refuse to see what is happening. To me, that is as ludicrous as two fish being vexed by the inquiry of how's the water. Because as Christians, we are taught and believe Jesus working is the default mode of God. We can imagine Romans 8.28 or Isaiah 40.28 or Genesis 50.20. We have ample page coverage on the assurances of God's abundance and effort and character. Surely we would be better, not hard-hearted towards Christ's enormous efforts. Surely I would be aware when presented with all of these works. Church, I wish it were true. Embarrassingly, it's not especially recently. In fact, it is surprisingly easy for me, and I would say us, to neglect and even reject God's bountiful works in our lives when they are right in front of us. This is why I ultimately see the disciples as sympathetic. They're sympathetic characters because while it should be easy to blame them, and certainly we all participate in blaming them frequently, I think all it takes is one thing to happen, and we quickly become the disciples in the boats, scared, confused, and stubborn about what's in front of us. I'll be bold and say everyone here, that's obviously including myself chiefly, is bullheaded towards a God that endlessly blesses us with bounty. Let me give you an example. About a month and a half ago, I was laid off. Those of you that know me know I love consistency. Cole talked about my mind. Well, consistency helps keep that weird mind together. So not having eight scheduled hours a day is a bit of a cognitive and emotional nightmare for me. Um, So you must imagine not having a job, that trustworthy schedule has done wonders for my health. It's been very, very hard. And that's, I confess, why I've been angry with God. Um, That's even why I prayed it. And it is true. How could he take this job away from me I gave two years for this company that my friends built and thought I was doing great work. My reviews were awesome. My numbers were good and I was still let go. How could God do this to me? Ironically, as I meditated over this passage in church, this isn't a claim that I over-prepared. Like I said in the beginning, I, a few weeks ago, didn't want to preach on this. I've been trying to write this sermon and just getting frustrated and rewriting as I have confronted myself in these disciples over my own stubbornness. But do you know what I saw, church? I saw people standing up and telling me, we will not let you lose your house. I saw friends rushing to support. I've seen the physically healthiest boom in my life as the Spirit has provisioned me joy in exercising for the first time ever. By the way, to some of you, I'm I'm a little sorry for how zealous I've been. It's just exciting to... uh, Workout, even if that mean, means bombing some of you with absurd lifting memes late into the night. <laughs> it's, it's nice to lift and move again. Chase, that pump. <laughs> Chase the pump. I've seen friends get me things and encourage me. It's not my birthday. Usually we get gifts at Christmas, birthdays, or huge events of celebration. Well, right now under, under this hoodie, which was a gift, uh, I'm wearing another recent gift for a special limited edition t-shirt of one of my favorite things on the planet. Um, And it's just, it meant the world to me. And it was just an encouragement. Um, 
in, in every way, I've seen, I've seen you guys, the church, step up in prayer. Your actions, finances, you name it. People here in this room have prayed, checked in, stopped by, brought me food, bought me food, asked good questions, offered so much money, you name it. I have been cared for so sufficiently, not just by Frontier Church, which you have cared for me so well in these last eight weeks, but the macro church. There's people in this room who aren't members, who don't belong here, who have stuck themselves out for me and helping me prep with my resume, prayer, interview prep, helping me find jobs, you, you name it. The church in an Iowa sense, the local church, not just Frontier, all of you have been amazing. And yet... I have still been angry with God. And church, that is precisely why I want to paint the disciples in this sympathetic light. Because I'm guilty of the hard-heartedness too. I share the human condition of seeing God move and neglecting him still. Of seeing God say, fear not, it is I, and calm storms. And still being stubborn, denying what I see. I share this human condition. God has made it abundantly clear how cared for I am, not just by the grace of the cross, which is certainly true, true, but by his daily outpouring of provisions, provisions that I lap up, I consume and I revel in and then still bite at his hand for more or worse, neglecting. I think many of you are probably struggling right now. It's exhausting to be a parent of one, of two, three or four kids. It doesn't matter the number. It's hard to be a parent. It takes everything you have uh, so much so that it leads some to have prayers on their steering wheels just to make sure that they're trying their best when they walk inside. That's how tiring it is. A boss beating down on you. Maybe your marriage is in shambles. Uh, Maybe you're just making bad choices and you feel abandoned but maybe help and care are being offered, but you turn your head because you feel you don't deserve it, or worse, it's not the specific quality of care that you want. We are all consumed by difficulty, and it is very relatable. And it's very easy when in difficult times to not look up, to not look around, or worse, to look around and refuse to see. Still, if we pay attention, it is clear God is working tirelessly. So church, wake up. If we're not careful, we too will run the risk of going our whole lives swimming around currents without ever considering what it is that carries us. Awaken church. Pay attention. Stop trying to cherry pick favorable or desirable blessings and realize how blessed you are naturally by God's constant efforts. The conundrum of the fish asking what is water is a shared thing. We can blindly go about our days so robotically that we fail to see what is right in front of us. God has declared himself to us, church, just like he did to the disciples. It is I. He has saved us, and he is working tirelessly to form us back to him. Yeah. (laughs) You might be thinking, Casey, this is all well and good, I guess, but how do I pay attention Church, that is a great question. And at the time of writing this, I don't have a clear picture. I wish I did. I think it starts with awareness. 
I know that I can list names, I can list actions and events in the past eight weeks that are indisputable provisions from God. And still often I slump my shoulders or build a wall around my heart in frustration to him. However, despite that, what I do know is that it likely starts simply by looking up, seeing those around you, seeing their struggles and seeing how they're serving, seeing how you're being served. Church, we have to be willing to see what is happening around us, to fight our default setting for pessimism and seeing the negative and learn to be astonished in the right way at all the good occurring and declare it for what it is, God working in our lives. David Foster Wallace had a book he posthumously published called The Pale King. And in this book, it tells a story rich with ennui. Uh, That's a, a French word for like middle loneliness, kind of like a sense of spatial loneliness or floatiness. Um, and actual loneliness about individuals working for the IRS in Peoria, Illinois. Some of us in this room are familiar with Peoria, Illinois. (laughs) Sounds like an IRS town. (laughs) Uh, um, It's a very interesting book, but the book doesn't open with the humdrum and tedium of working for the IRS in Peoria, Illinois. Instead, David Foster Wallace uses irony to set the stage for the ongoings of his narrative. He uses contrast. I've shared this with some of you. So Tara, I'm sorry, you've probably heard me read this out loud three times now. Um, In the past, I've posted it on Facebook. Those of you that don't know, David Foster Wallace took his life September 12th, 2008. So usually around this time, I tend to talk about him. He's one of my favorite authors. Uh, But I want you to see how he opens this book Because it might be exhaustive, but I really do see a man trying to pay attention. And I see an opportunity to learn. All of us learn how we can start turning our minds to God if we are willing to just look around. So in a book about IRS, boredom, loneliness, and ennui, the book opens. Past the flannel plains and blacktop grass and skylines of canted rust and past the tobacco brown river overhung with weeping trees and coins of sunlight through them on the water down river to the place beyond the windbreak where untilled fields simmer shrilly in the a.m. Heat, shatter cane, lamb's quarter, cut grass, saw briar, nut grass, jimson weed, wild mint, dandelion, foxtail, muscadine, spine cabbage, goldenrod, creeping charlie, butterprint, nightshade, ragweed, wild oat, vetch, butchergrass, and vagonet volunteer beans, all heads gently nodding in the morning breeze, like a mother's soft hand on your cheek. An arrow of starlings fired from the windbreak's thatch, the glitter of dew that stays where it is and steams all day. A sunflower, four more, one bowed, and horses in the distance standing rigid and still as toys, all nodding. Electric sounds of insects at their business, ale-colored sunshine and pale sky and whirls of surus so high they cast no shadow. Insects, all business all the time, quartz and shirt and cyst and chondrite, iron scrabs and granite, very old land. Look around you, the horizon is trembling, shapeless. We are all of us brothers." 
Wallace was an author who loved to play with irony. And in this beautiful description, it will set in a completely ironic tone for fluorescent lighting, melodrama, dead romance, and loneliness. However, I don't want to move into the irony. I want to see this, this text as an opportunity, the Bible and then Wallace's text as an opportunity to be observant. Look how he pays attention to everything around him. Look how he names all of the plants. Look how he doesn't overlook the sky, the water, and the insects. By the way, you can actually Google all of that. Those are all native things to Peoria. Everything he lists is real there, which is really cool. And he's quite a dork, so he does things like that. Um, Same, by the way. But it shows a level of observation that I think we need to start to develop Christian if we are going to worship God well, if we are going to not be hard-hearted. The beginning journey chiseling away the stone of our hearts and seeing God's wondrous works is to see with specificity, precision, and abundant means that God is relishing you and developing you. That doesn't mean that we neglect the difficult things. Not at all. Rather, it is choosing to see that in the most difficult moments, God is there and declaring himself king and reigning you with graces anew every day. This isn't easy. It's so hard every day for me. I want to be mad. I want to rage. I want to feel wronged and I want to curse God. If I'm honest, I do. Sometimes I want to curse God. And if none of that, maybe some days, I just want to cherry pick what blessings I want. I want to be able to choose how God should serve me through his people. I don't want to pay attention And I want to think that he is against me or that I am simply being punished and persecuted. But it isn't this way. We have to start somewhere. Church, I have to start somewhere to combat this state. And where do we start? Start simply by calling out our blessings and thankfulness, opening our eyes so that when God is presenting himself in front of us daily, all of his good work, we would not be hard-hearted Um, we would not be like Pharaoh or like we would expect of the Pharisees, but actually the disciples, those closest to him, when he says, it is I. So make sure when someone prays for you, offers help or lifts you up or et cetera, the amount of times I was prayed over this morning, holy moly, you guys are awesome. Not only give thanks to them for their words, but give thanks and direct praise to God for creating an environment where that is real and he's providing for you in that moment. Beseech God to make you aware of all that he is doing and ask him for help to warm you up, to warm up your heart, to break the stone, to become thankful again. Church, if we refuse to operate this way, hold on one second, I'm just checking my time, making sure we're good. If we refuse to operate this way, We will miss so many opportunities to give thanks, to worship, and to pursue joy. If we are just two fish swimming along, neglecting the water, or an IRS worker refusing to look out at the beauty outside of an office window, or a guy preaching who is frustrated with one thing not going a certain way and refusing to see all of the ways things go right, then we will be just like the disciples in the boat. We will see miraculous things happen often, We will be provided for in copious volume. 
we will receive blessing after blessing after blessing and still remain cold. And still like two fish swimming, ask, what the heck is this? What the heck is water? How can I be mad at the disciples when I act the same way? How can I condemn the stone hearted when even recently I refuse to look up and respond in worship to it is I, Christ's statement of divinity, his provision and his work. Jesus is showing you his abundant grace and mercies. I promise you he is. He is lifting you up, preserving you and showering you with love and blessing. Look around you, fight with yourself inch by inch, tooth and nail to see all that he is doing. Not just what he has done, which is true. Not just what he will do, which is also true, but what he is currently doing. And whether you like it or not, church, he is turning our hearts back to him. So as unobservant as we are, as unobservant as I am, as much as I seem to fight in the opposite direction, and probably you too, he will drag us kicking and screaming by his grace with the power of the spirit to be more like him. In spite of our raging denials, our frustrations and willful neglecting. Church, he loves you and is pouring himself out for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I feel like that was a bit of a confessional. But thank you for giving me that space. I hope that we would awake to your great and abundant mercies. I pray that we would be sympathetic to the disciples to see this pattern in the human condition when presented with great power, your great power, that it is often our default setting to go, no, that's not it. This isn't the one to deny in the face of reality what is true. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, soften them quickly, make us patient, make us thankful creatures make us aware of all that you are doing and not angry with how it's being done, but understanding that your will and greatness is monumental compared to our pebbles of aspirations and thinking that we could do it right. You are God. You have declared it is I. Attune our hearts to your will. Return us back to you. Make us ultimately thankful and loving creatures again. It's your son's name I pray. Amen.